you can continue going on your merry way and ignore your privilege. That is also a choice. Is that the choice you want to make? Does it match the values you hold? Does it match the type of person you want to be in the world? And I don't mean good, bad. I just mean the type of person you personally want to be. Does it match that? And if it doesn't, get uncomfortable and get ready to be uncomfortable way more than you realize. This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 341 with guest McKenna Held. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. Wow, things are still pretty intense out there. If you've spent any time on social media, you have seen it. Maybe you have taken a break from social media. Maybe you are really trying to up your self-care. If you're feeling overwhelmed, I really hope that you are taking a break and practicing self-care because burnout is a thing. Today, I have a new episode for you. I hope you enjoyed the replay last week with Andrea Renee Johnson, such an important conversation. And this week, I have a new show for you with McKenna Held. You'll hear how we met once we start talking, and McKenna is just one of those people who has has is wise beyond her years. I'm, I'm really surprised that she's not actually older than she is, and you know, it's interesting to me being someone who's now officially middle-aged. I turned 45 this past April and it's kind of amazing that there are so many younger women who are coming to these realizations that women like me didn't come to until much later in their 20s and even sometimes late teens that are realizing, okay, there are these huge things that matter that I need to understand better and take action on and stand up for and or they're realizing that they won't tolerate shitty relationships anymore and need to learn how to stand up for themselves, need to learn how to set boundaries. And so at the end of the day, it's never too late to start doing these things. I just find it so incredibly heartwarming that younger and younger generations are coming to these conclusions about their life, whether it is to make their own lives better and or to make the world a better place. And McKenna is is no exception. So for those of you that don't know her, let me tell you a little bit about her. McKenna Held is a writer, educator, and serial entrepreneur. While she's most known for being the woman who bought Julia Child's house, that is one of the least interesting things about her. Her business, personal, and leadership coaching is committed to exploring paradigms of the human condition, including liberation, human potential, obliterating capitalism's hold on our souls, and the essence of suffering. Through her cooking schools, coaching, writings, and live events, she inspires humans to live lives full of purpose and intention through unfettering oneself, dissipating conventional wisdom, and cultivating their own recipes to allow deeply resonant and personal truths to shine through. She and her work has been featured in Vogue.com, Today.com, Bon Appetit, Food & Wine, Forbes, Condé Nast Traveler, and more. So without further ado, here is McKenna. <laughs> McKenna, thank you so much for being here. 
So great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I want to I want to tell people like how we met because you and I have kind of run in the same circles online and that's how I meet a lot of the people who I invite to be on the show. And I've always admired your work and your voice and the things you stand for. And then I was doing some book research and you had an experience that I was interested in hearing more about. And then we just had a, I just a candid conversation about it. And then I, I liked you so much and respected you so much. I'm like, I want to have you, want to have you on the show. So that's how we got here. And right before we started recording, I asked you a question. I'm like, we need to, we need to actually talk about what's happening in this moment because it's June 2nd, 2020. Um, you're actually not in the United States, mm-hmm. but you are American. Yes. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're living in France right now. And I asked you before we started recording because I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on something and you and you said something really important that I think that I wanted my listeners to hear. So I just got finished re- um, recording with another guest of mine, Mike Robbins, and you know, he was a he's a straight white cisgendered man and I just said in the beginning of our conversation, like we're going to be centering whiteness and it's uncomfortable and messy. And I just kind of wanted to say it out loud because I knew that's what we were doing. And you said something that I wanted, I want you to say to the listeners, because that's, it's something I didn't address in my conversation with Mike, Mm. which is, which is, what did you say about whiteness? So I said that whiteness is a sickness white people carry and they're the upholders and they are the perpetrators of whiteness and whiteness. Whiteness isn't just like, white people. No, whiteness is white Mm -hmm. supremacy. So even if you're not a white supremacist, you uphold white supremacy due to systematic and institutional structures that came before you, which means white people inherit whiteness. White people inherit, Mm -hmm. inherit and have it inherently have white supremacy baked into their cultures. And so much of it is because it is allowed and expected and celebrated, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in the United States. But frankly, anywhere that has a colonialistic past carries this sickness, carries this problem, carries the privilege of it, and does various things to uphold it and perpetrate it. Mm-hmm. Which as white people, if we haven't done any work on this yet, we can get very defensive about that. Oh my gosh, it's so easy to get defensive. The first Mm -hmm. time I realized that racism was still an issue in the United States, I was 19 years old. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, very white city, and everything seemed like copacetic and happy and, you know, people got along. And then I got, went off to Smith College, which is far more diverse. It's very political. It's very heady. It's very, mm-hmm. it, it, it's so, such a place of smart humans. It's a woman's college, yeah. but it's not only it's for women. College, yeah. um, there are a lot of men and non-binary folks there. And I just found myself completely gobsmacked about the notion that as a queer woman, that when I felt like I was getting called out all the time for being queer, like when I was in public because of how I dressed and how short my hair was, there was a lot of slurs that got headed my way. I got into a head-to-head fight with a mutual friend who was a black queer woman and she told me to stand down and I pushed back harder. And it wasn't until 
like six months after that, where I went to an anti-racism training where mm-hmm. I was the white woman in the room that said, but what about reverse racism? And the black trainer mm-hmm. was like, I need you to sit down and listen to me and understand why that does not exist. And I, yeah. I said, okay, I'm paying to be here. I'll shut up and listen. And so I did. And I was shocked by what I heard. It's nothing that had ever been explained to me before. And I have probably spent the past, oh, I don't know, you know, 15 years still unpacking it. So from my yeah. moment of awakening, I still screw up daily sometimes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's the really interesting thing about all this. It's like, no, it, you carry it with you. It's our job to unpack it. It's our job to um, dismantle what we can and then keep looking. And it's a never ending process. It's no different than self-help of any kind. Right. It, it is a never ending process. Just when you think you've reached like the, I'm good, I made it. It's like, Whoa, what was that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for, for kind of explaining that a little bit. And it's, and I always try to make sure like, am I throwing words around that people might not know what they mean? And thank you for saying too, that it's a lifelong journey. Like I tell people all the time on this show, like your personal development journey is going to be lifelong. Sorry, there's no end date. And, and I readily admit that when I started talking about this in 2017 and took my foot off the gas, you know, took, took a class, read a bunch of books, was talking about it on the show and got complacent, Mm -hmm. not only, you know, as, as in my leadership, but and sometimes more importantly, doing my own work. And then the bottom dropped out. And then what we're seeing with the deaths of so many Black people, not just in the last few months, but mm. over the last you know hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And then what we're seeing now this week as we're recording this, really truly coming to realize like, okay, Andrea, like you, you, you this, this work never stops. Right. And that's where I find myself now. And, and not, you know, and it was just kind of a coincidence that over here on the show, like we tend to batch um, episodes and I, I'll record a bunch in a week. And, and I'm like, I can't not talk about this. Like I can't just pretend that it's business as usual with, you know, and I, and I do want to talk about the other work that you do, but it's all directly related to this. So totally is. So the really interesting thing that I liken racism to is the same thing as limiting beliefs except that there's a structural upholding, but oftentimes, especially for women and queer folks, that those limiting beliefs are also structurally upheld. We're not good enough because we're women. And so racism is, this, is very similar. We have been conditioned to believe, even if we don't fully personally believe it, we've been conditioned to kind of allow it to exist. Oh, it's just how things are. Oh, it's not as bad as it used to be. So those things, they're almost identical to everything that coaches work through. That's why a lot of coaches who also have anti-racism training, especially coaches who are of color, have moved into that industry because the work is vastly similar. It's understanding that you have a thing that you can't see, ripping that thing off, staring at it, getting really upset and confused that it exists, staring mm-hmm. at it again, figuring out where it comes from, from a kind of detached place, figuring out if it's yeah. from, 
is that belief from your father? Is that belief from your mother? Is that belief from society? Is that belief from a boss? Is it, is it just kind of the community you were raised in? And then figuring out what belief you can replace and how you can move on. Mm-hmm. And what you can do to change it. What practices can you do to change that? And in this case, the practices are de-investing your capital from racist organizations, de-investing your capital from systems that aren't kind. It's investing in other places. It's hiring people who are different than you and actually knowing what that means and what the responsibility is behind that. Mm -hmm. Not just doing it to check off the box. I have a black employee. Check. Nope. Be performative. No. Well, talk about, talk to us about because you say um, uh, from your website, you know, obliterating capitalism's hold on our souls and the essence of suffering. Like that line, I think, says so much. But can you unpack that for us? Absolutely. So capitalism is deeply rooted in colonialism. Um, mm-hmm. And the notion is that we can build income by taking. Yeah. And you see that in marketing all of the time. You see it when people tell other self-help folks or people who are looking for a coach. Yeah. You can just get them to, you can just get them to pay you. It's almost like you're colonializing their soul. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're colonializing Mm -hmm. their work. You're colonializing their brain. You're taking power and taking, you're taking your power and pulling it away from them. So the notion of capitalism is to destroy like the actual core of who we are. And capitalism comes from Protestantism. And that doesn't mean Protestantism is bad. It's just baked in. They're t- completely connected. And there's a lot of philosophy around this. A German philosopher named Max Weber talked about this in a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And it's the whole notion that if you work really hard, God will reward you. So okay. we can say if you work really hard, the universe will reward you. We can switch that to you don't have to work hard, but if your energy is great, then the universe will reward you. And so that, yeah, that's all capitalism. And my favorite example is one of the richest man in the world is supposed to be a real schmuck. He makes more money than anyone else. So clearly it's not energy, friends, because he is not clean energy. He's not a nice dude. Everybody I know who's ever worked for him is like, no, thank you. And he could be many hymns. There's plenty of them. Some of them are nice. Mm -hmm. Some of them aren't. But like all of these notions we have are just reframes of capitalism that you do good, you'll get rewarded. You work hard, you'll get rewarded. You move in flow, you'll get rewarded. When actually what work looks like is doing something that has a perceived value and getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. The energy happens in the exchange. Money is the representation of the energy. It is not the energy itself. So if you can start to unpack that, and realize that your value and the value of the people you work with, whether they're clients, whether, I mean, most people have clients of various kinds. Even if you run a restaurant, you still have clients. You might call them guests. It's still the same mm-hmm. thing. Or customers. Customers. Mm-hmm. They co- money comes from their bank account and goes into your bank account, right? But when we put all this weight on money itself, it starts to become the object of desire rather than doing the work. And so my work is about de-energizing money and reprioritizing the energetics of the exchange between the service provider or object provider, you know, let's say you're selling a computer, Mm -hmm. that's fine too. And the person who's purchasing and doing that as the energy and money is just a representation of that exchange. It is not the exchange itself. Money has no energy. It's just money. Yeah. 
So when we, so it sounds, it's, it's not, is it, is it fair to say it to kind of translate it a little bit? Like my brain is saying, like, it, it sounds like it's the same as putting the focus on the value you provide for people versus the actual money exchange, like how much it costs and all of the, the, the metrics involved. Is that fair? Correct. Yes. And also okay. recognizing that money does have to exist currently uh-huh. in the current structures. Uh, anti-capitalist business practices don't necessarily mean that you don't accept money for your services. It's that you deprioritize how you approach it. Interesting. Yeah, because there's that argument like, okay, well, if we don't do capitalism, like what's it, what are our other options? And you there are know, millions it's, of it's other like, options. Okay. <laughs> Let's be honest, at this point, we barely work in money. We work in digital credits flying through the ether. Right. It's not really, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's just a representation of cash, right? And the cash that is in the system is a representation on the screen. Yep, mm-hmm. is a representation of basically what a government can carry. It's all just representations of something. So when we put power to that itself, instead of the power we have between ourselves and the people we work with and the people we interface with every day, we start assigning something that literally has only representative value, a real value, and that is what capitalism is. It creates a value judgment around money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That money inherently is valuable, not people, not our connections, not the services. It's that money itself is the value. Not our platforms. Right. Yeah. Not our voices. Yeah, it, it's it's. I love getting to know you better because, like, I, I was like, "Oh, McKenna has a cooking school," <laughs> I, and she bought Julia Child's house. Like, <laughs> there's that too. <laughs> there's that too on the side. And um, you, thank you for all of that. Like, I'm I'm getting a lesson here as well. I love I love learning about this. And all right, so I want to also talk about you know, of course, what's going on right now to presently, as you and I are recording, this is, is, you know, the atrocities and that black people are suffering right now and hurting, 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 hurting. And also there's the whole, I know that you talk a lot about just patriarchy in general and dismantling patriarchal structures. So can you talk to us? I know it's like a, such a broad question. Let me just like roll out the red carpet, like give you this, like just just talk to us about that. Like bring how do it. You, where do you start with people? <laughs> yeah, bring it. So the way I start with people is where we started our conversation. It's like what stories and what truths do we believe are true mm-hmm. and then deciphering what's true or not. So that's where we start. So you look at everything. So it's like the core belief thing. Yeah. And it's really mm-hmm. like all the core kind of stuff. It's like, it's all the good stuff and the bad stuff. None of it's really true. Okay, say more about that. So like mm-hmm. you can believe that I'm a really competent. So I believe I'm a really competent skier, right? Like I'm an, I'm mm-hmm. a really good skier. I go heli skiing. Like I, I've been skiing since I was a small child. Now that is true from my perception, but does it matter? And why do I care? And so the answer is why I care is because being an athlete's important to me. Okay. Why? And so it's like looking at all of these things to kind of look at them in holism rather than looking at them as just things we believe are true about us. Because once we can look at the positive things as holism, the things that we hold that we know have been given to us that we have decided to carry, nobody just thrusts things on us. We decide to continue carrying it. It's a conscious decision every single day to continue to decide to carry it, no matter how atrocious it is. And that's something that's really challenging to wrap your head around. But Mm -hmm. that's what restoration looks like. It's what the work of repair is. 
So my background's in philosophy. So like all of the stuff I talk about is actually based in my undergrad degree in philosophy and my PhD, which is almost finished in critical theory. So it's all in the notions of like mm-hmm. what makes humans human and what makes what allows humans to relate and be human together. So when I say the work repair, I mean like the philosophical work of repair, the philosophical work of reparations, the philosophical work of like repairing a car. It's very Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, right? And mm-hmm. so we, that's where we start. And by looking at that, what we're doing is we're disrupting all sorts of systems. So I use patriarchy as my entry point because I'm not an anti-racist educator. Like that's not where I come from. That's not my backing. But when you start to look at all that stuff, every single system of oppression starts to kind of come up and you start to see what structures are holding into place. And then you decide whether you're going to interact with those structures or not. So Mm -hmm. in my work, we start with looking at your more or less the like both the core beliefs and the limiting core beliefs. They're all technically limiting beliefs. That's another thing. Even if it's positive and you have a belief like, I am capable of making a million. Okay, are you capable of making two? Well, no. So that becomes a limiting mm-hmm. belief, even though it's a positive, right? For a lot of people, people yeah. think that'd be great. So we look there, we figure out how to disrupt that. And then we look at values structures we desire to engage with. So like when I say a value, I don't mean family. Mm-hmm. So one of my values on my values structure list that I have is I desire to invest the majority of my spending dollars in women and black owned and minority businesses that have business practices that are better than, and there's like a whole list of like things that yeah. must be there. So that means that for me to be able to do that, I have to be able to make more money typically because let's say a clothes mm-hmm. company that makes clothes ethically in LA and pays their people $17 an hour is going to cost more than something I buy at Target. Right. Right. And so it's looking at all of that so that you look at the values stuff and then you look at like how, what type of income do I need to make and why and how am I going to spend that money so it matches my values? And also, how am I going to make it in a way that's integrity to how I am willing to take responsibility for my marketing or the business I work for? Right. Okay. I, I, lo- I love everything that you're saying. It resonates so much with it. And I want to take a couple <laughs> steps backwards sure. because I think that there's a, there's a pretty decent spectrum of people that are listening to this show. Mm-hmm. I have people who have done their work around dismantling patriarchy and white supremacy and, and, and those systems. And then I have people who are just starting out. And I, I, I want to say this from my own privileged white woman experience from a few years ago when I first started out in, you know, sitting in my class, my, my, um, my anti-racism class that I was in. And I went through this, I got all up in my white feelings and was got really stuck in this place of, uh, for me, anger is, is a feeling and emotion that I can easily access. I know it might look different for different people, but just the discovery of when the oppressor is the oppressed, Mm -hmm. that whole thing of, you know, and there was, it was also, there were men and women and in this particular group and I was on this particular call and it was a really small group and we're all on zoom. And there was a straight man on the, um, on the call with us. And we were, 
in that moment, in that particular class, talking about sexism and our own internal internalized sexism. So I'm like wrestling with, you know, like, oh my God, I have slut shamed. I have, mm-hmm. um, you know, been, been awful talking about sex workers and, and strippers and things like that. So it's like, it's like, it's raining down on me. And then also angry that there was like a man in the room and I'm like, you can fuck all the way off right now. Yes. <laughs> I don't even want to be near you. And, um, I'm, I feel grateful that I was able to have the space held for me that I needed to go through those feelings in order to, because I just don't think that we learn from it when we're all up in our shame and our own trauma. I don't think we can listen to other people's experiences. I don't think we can fully process our own experiences. And so I say all that because I just kind of want to take a step back and and have you speak to that for a moment. Mm -hmm. Like when people, like when you were 19 and you had that sit down moment from the, the woman who was teaching you, what is your advice for, for women who are in, and just for reference, there's, um, women of all colors and ages who listen to this show, but it's, I have a predominantly white woman audience. Absolutely. So my metaphor for this is the Bialetti coffee maker or a percolator. You know, anything that you put Mm -hmm. on a stovetop or you have to make coffee where the pressure rises and then the water kind of comes out the top and then it goes over the coffee and it creates a loop. And the reason why I say this is because you're going to feel the pressure come up and you have to release it, but do not release it on the person you are getting the information from. Right. Go release it elsewhere. Go scream into a pillow go stamp your feet in a park, go on a run and curse the person who called you in or out under your breath the whole way, whatever you need to do to release it. And then magic happens because the pressure releases, it comes out the top and then something happens. You actually start to synthesize. Before, when you think about a percolator, you have water and a coffee basket and the pressure. And once it releases, it hits the coffee, it's not very tasty coffee at first. It's really bitter. <laughs> it's bitter. <laughs> and it's um, unpleasant. And then it keeps circulating and it chills out. And what you get is an answer and you get what's true for you. And it's a choice to do that. You can always choose to snap. You can always choose to say F off or mm-hmm. you can choose to sit with the pressure. It will not hurt forever. It still happens to me. I got called in the other day about a comment I made in my private like community and I wanted to snap back. I'm not racist. And I'm like, girl, McKenna, stop. You are being told by a South Asian woman who is brown, who lives in the same continent as you in Europe, that what you're saying is racist. Just sit down. And it took about 24 hours and she's a friend of mine and it still hit me and it still sucks. No one who is working their butt off to do better wants to be told when it's not good enough. Yes. And I I think what's, what's been shown to me lately is part of white supremacy is also white people, a couple of things, wanting to look like the good white person. Mm Mm-hmm. Common. As well as <laughs> wanting to look better than other white people. Yes. And when I say better, I mean like personally doing better. I don't mean compared to mm-hmm. others. It's like you're working through your stuff and you think you've kind of like reached the end of your stuff. Same thing happens. You're going to reach an end that you didn't know was there. The end of your capacity. 
what some people mm-hmm. might call blind spots. I call them hidden spots because of the ableism tied into the word blind, um, okay. like things that are hidden from your view. Um, and it, it's really uncomfortable no matter how far you get, but it does get easier. Yeah. Truly. It does. It does. And then it ebbs and flows. And um, I just kind of wanted to give people a clear picture of, uh, you know, no one ever died from the massive discomfort that comes from this work. Nope. And uh, yeah, that's you're all going to that. feel like it for a second. You're going to feel like everything in you is being attacked. And then you have to take a step back and go, I'm not being attacked. The systems I am complicit in are being attacked that show up in me. They are not mine. They were, I inherited them. I am choosing to continue to carry them. And it's my choice whether I put them down or not. And that is a choice. It's not a requirement. You can continue going on your merry way and ignore your privilege. That is also a choice. Is that the choice you want to make? Does it match the values you hold? Does it match the type of person you want to be in the world? And I don't mean good, bad. I just mean the type of person you personally want to be. Does it match that? And if it doesn't, get uncomfortable and get ready to be uncomfortable way more than you realize. 100%. I love that you're making so many parallels to personal development in general. And I saw them before, but but you are quite honestly making me see them so much more clearly. And I will... I will definitely quote you in my book probably more times than I originally <laughs> thought I would. <laughs> Co-written by McKenna Help. Um, no, but I just, it's, I call that like the point of no return mm-hmm. when you have walked in and you see all of your disempowering beliefs, when you see what the media has handed you, what the culture has handed you, what your ex-partner or parents or family of origin or whatever. And then you are afraid to, I mean, this happens, I, I facilitate shame work and it's, it's so incredibly uncomfortable and it's a physiological response yes. that we get. You know, our bodies are telling us like, this is unsafe. Get out. Now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's what, that's what we are commonly fighting with in any sort of self-realization because looking at your own inherited racism, looking at your own racist beliefs, you subconsciously or consciously carry is no different than any other piece of thing that you subconsciously or consciously carry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the internalized misogyny was, right. was actually pretty shocking to me. Right. Like I thought, you know, oh no, this is just men's issue that they need to figure out. And, um, no, oh, it's all of our issues. It's all of our issues. Well, and that's a, that one really knocked me down. Absolutely. I just, it, w- mm. once you can, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Right. It's like, oh my gosh, I've done all these things to my people. And I think that's the thing to remember that's different between that level of work within the patriarchy and the work of a white woman doing anti-racism work within themselves or just limiting belief work. Your limiting beliefs that are kind of like just about you generally only hurt you. Mm-hmm. And then the limiting beliefs or the beliefs you carry and the internalized things that hurt you that also hurt people like you only hurt people like you. And then racism hurts people different from you. And that pain is more structurally challenging to look at because it's not yours. Right. 
And so it's harder mm-hmm. to see, witness, and understand. And it requires a lot more. The way I have upheld this has only harmed others. But frankly, whiteness harms all people. Like it also robs it's, yeah, it yeah. robs white people of wholeness too, right? Like mm-hmm. a disproportionately no, it disproportionately robs people of color, black people, and indigenous people gazillion times more, but it robs all people of right. wholeness. Mm-hmm. And so yes. the more that we can like sit and listen and pay attention to that and realize that we're looking at layer cakes of various types of doom and gloom and it's still work we choose to do. Like you choose to look at your personal limiting beliefs. You choose to look at how you've upheld internalized misogyny and the patriarchy. You choose to look at what racism you hold within you and what structures you uphold. They're all choices. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of switching gears here. I think it's indirectly related. You, t- you talk a lot about and work with women about trusting themselves and their intuition. Mm-hmm. So why is this so important? And, and please you know, enlighten us on like how it's directly related to this and how can people start to do that? Ah, yeah. So my entry point to intuition is through human design um, because it's really nice as a place to start because it ties into mechanics. It's not just your intuition. It's, it's like literally you can look at the way that you are wired to process information from the world, universe, et cetera, however you want to perceive it. God. Can you explain to people a little bit what human design is yeah, for those that absolutely. might not know? So human design is like a meld of astrology and quantum physics and a lot of other um, esoteric practices that is based on the time of birth and where you were born and what was happening in the sky where you were born, but it's based on the full, based on the notion that like neutrinos, which are subatomic particles um, that are the like bare, like basics of quantum physics. It's those that come through these places and then hit you. And that programs your cells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, I always joke <laughs> that it's ridiculous in a lot of ways. So I'm a sci- like, I'm a scientist. I wasn't, a, so I went to philosophy and then I went to economics and I'm still in like critical theory philosophy. And one of my advisors is one of the like head quantum physicists in the world. And she hates me because I use it more for self-help and development. And it's very funny because the way she uses it and the way I use it are identical, just on different applications. And so we we get into arguments, we get into arguments about this in classrooms all the time. And I just stopped taking classes with her because it's just too silly at this point, because we just don't (laughs) see eye to eye. And she's, it's just not willing. But the whole notion is like, there is a way to look at how you respond to decisions, how you make decisions and how like your best your best way to move through the world in terms of interacting with others so that everybody gets along copacetically. So what the really nice thing is, is that it ties in really nicely for people who like hear the, listen to your intuition and they're like, um, what does that mean? I keep mm-hmm. hearing that and I just don't get it. Kind of breaks down how that shows up in their body. So like some people get their information as like flashes. And some people get their information in like big downloads. Some people get their information that they use for decision-making, like like get that gut feeling. And there are people who don't have gut feelings and they're like, well, I don't have one. And chances are it's like not in their design. So I, I love using it because it really helps with the notion that like the way that we're trained to make decisions in the world is by like pro-con lists. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Writing down all the possible. Seeking the counsel of our friends. Mm-hmm. Yep. That doesn't work for about 75 to 90% of the population. I mean, each of those has a different percentage. But making pro cons lists works literally for like 4%. It's an actually effective tool. What it does for the wow, rest. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. What it does, it only works for mm-hmm. like two types of human designs, which we're not going to go into right now. It's like two subtypes. Everyone else is better off following other ways of gathering that information and responding and things like that actually muddy the waters for most people. So it's a great entry point into discussing how you access your intuition. So we start there and then we go through a bunch of body practices and meditations instead of we develop that muscle because so many Mm -hmm. of us don't have it developed. We've, we've been told to shut up and row, keep our head down, make our salary, retire, buy an RV or go on the road or what have you and kind of just... Yeah. Maybe go out into nature if you have time. Maybe. <laughs> maybe go stick your feet in the dirt once every two months. <laughs> in the grass. And so... Get grounded. Yeah. Go get grounded. And I love when clients come to me and they're like, I don't even know what that means. I'm like, of course you don't because no one explains it. So it's like, just ground, ground. Well... <laughs> Well, and it might look different. Like feeling grounded might look different for different people. Oh, absolutely it will. I could show you on a human design mm-hmm. chart, like mm-hmm. how someone's going to feel grounded versus another one. Like me in seated meditation literally is a no because I have an open mm-hmm. root center. It's undefined, which means like me just sitting, not a good thing. Too much pressure, just not fun, not, not, not happy making. Mm-hmm. My groundedness is like walking in a, walking a labyrinth, going on a hike. I can do lying down meditations before sleep. So there are things I can do, but that doesn't make me a bad meditator. It makes me a different meditator. Right. Okay. I like that. Yeah. That was a very long answer. So we went on a little side tangent. (laughs) 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 I find such delight in people coming on who talk about things that I am not an expert in. Um, because of my personality, I, when I just always want to jump in, you know, and like, let me tell you what I think, (laughs) but I, I'm like, please take the stage. It's so fascinating to learn different things around wellness. And and just, it just is really refreshing to, to hear all this. So what does this all have to do with cooking (laughs) (laughs) or does it? Oh, it totally does. So we haven't inherited the notion that a cooking is difficult or B cooking Mm -hmm. is easy. It is neither. You choose how difficult to make it. You choose how easy to make it. It is both and neither, right? So many of us have inherited trauma through our parents about like either they were terrible cooks, so we intrinsically believe we're terrible cooks, or we've inherited trauma through various loved ones who say like, well, I'm the cook and I cook better food. And so we start to doubt our abilities or we read a lot of recipes and they never come out right. And that's because I will always say that recipe writers lie, not all recipe writers, but most like it, 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 It just doesn't take 15 minutes to caramelize onions. I don't care what anyone says. It's just not true. So if you're going into a recipe and you are a new cook and you believe that onions are going to caramelize by 15 minutes and you burn the bejesus out of them, you're going to suddenly, and then it tastes bad, you're going to think you've done it wrong. So all of the structures of cooking that currently exist in our society, unless your Nona taught you how to cook and lucky you or your grandmother or your mother or whatever, right? Most of us don't have that anymore because of the way society is built. So we have all these other ways of learning to cook. And even if we got that time with the people who we loved, it was limited, comparatively speaking, to in in the way before times, right? Long ago and Mm -hmm. far away. (laughs) 
And so being able to actually learn to cook is about understanding what you like. It's what your taste buds like. If you don't like cilantro, stop making yourself like cilantro. You're not broken. Cilantro tastes like Some people, like, it tastes like it soap, tastes like right? Soap. Isn't that cilantro? Right. Okay, I love cilantro. So there's Exactly, I do too. But there's so many layers of things that we start to believe in cooking because experts tell us they should be done a certain way and we start to believe them. It's no different than when you hire a coach who walks you through their methodology for change that's very prescriptive and gives no room for you to be yourself. It could be an atrocious fit. Mm-hmm. Same idea. If you're going through a cookbook, let's make it really simple. You're a vegetarian. You don't pick up a meat eater cookbook, right? But many of us are picking up French cookbooks and pssst, they don't like French food. They think they should, but they don't actually like it. So it's about finding the capacity to understand what you like, identifying it, naming it, deciding what you don't like, identifying it, naming it, throwing that out of the way for the most part, and then trying to see if it's if it's actually cumin or is it a combination of cumin and cinnamon? Like maybe you had a dish that was once made that way. So actually it's deeply interconnected. Hence why I started a recipe free cooking school. It sounds like it's such a fantastic metaphor for life. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That was very well. And that's, that was going to be my next question, but I think I figured it out. Like, what do you do in your, in your cooking school and workshops? Exactly. I I don't think it's just about cooking. (laughs) I mean, so here's the thing. It is and it isn't right. So we have, we have different approaches among all the different cooks and chefs in the programs. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it, it really depends on the group. We have a lot of clients who that, that kind of way of approaching it, they are bored and it's uninteresting to them. And we have some clients who, when we start talking about that, their eyes get really bright and big. Mm-hmm. And so we run cooking schools. I should say we used to run cooking schools all over the world. Hello, pandemic. We will again someday. Um, but so each program has kind of a different element. So the program in France is the gateway. We introduce some of those core concepts, but it's not as in-depth And then we have an online program that's very in-depth on that end. And then we have a Vermont farm-to-table program where where literally the 180-acre farm that we do it on grows the produce I send them. Like I send them seeds and they take care of it. And then we cook with that. We do things in Italy. Mm -hmm. So it kind of just depends on the program. You know, we cater Mm -hmm. it to the the people in the room and we have different conversations with different clients. And that's um, the beautiful thing is that the differences make it work. Yeah. Well, if that isn't a beautiful ending to this show, I don't know what is. The differences are what make it work. Um, Not that everything's tied up with a pretty bow, but I just feel like it's a beautiful sentiment. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your wisdom today. Is there anything, I like to ask people like, is there anything that we missed that you feel like it's just kind of on the tip of your tongue that you want to say before we close up? No, I'm good. You feel complete? I feel complete. (laughs) I'm great. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I loved this so much. My pleasure. Uh, Where do you want people to go and learn about your cooking school and the services that you offer and all of that good stuff? Um, At McKenna Held. But if you you looked at how many different social media accounts, I'd be rambling here for 10 minutes. So we'll just say easiest (laughs) to find me at McKenna Held. And that's a great starting place to kind of bounce off into all the directions of the things I do. 
the things you offer. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Everyone listening, thank you so much for your time. It is incredibly valuable. And I know that I appreciate that you choose to spend it here with me and my guests. And until next time, everyone, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. 